0: Please help me in welcoming Dr. Zyrus. All right. So first, let me make sure—is this microphone working okay? All right. Good. So, as most of you know, I like to walk around whenever I lecture, and let me make sure, I make sure—I think this thing's working too. So, I am obviously really excited to be here. This is my favorite place to come and lecture, um, not just because you're also good-looking, but in fact because. Unlike dermatologists, a lot of times, um, you guys are actually interested in learning new things, implementing new things, not sticking to kind of what you've been taught, and that's the only way to do things. And so I feel like I'm able to have more of, a, of an impact um, by talking to you guys than to almost any other audience that's out there. Um, one thing that I, I also wanted to mention, I, I was just talking to Greg. We're, this goes back to the innovative educational approaches. At the summer meeting in Chicago, we're going to do a two-hour workshop on contact dermatitis on Friday that will really focus on a very practical, you know, the easy part in contact dermatitis is getting a positive patch test reaction and saying to somebody, you're allergic to methylchloroisothiazolinone, or formaldehyde or fragrance or nickel or whatever. The hard part, and in fact, for the most part, the impossible part, is actually educating the patient having the resources to give them, here's the shampoo you can use, here's a soap you can use, here's a moisturizer you can use, here's where you can get jewelry, here's which jewelry you can wear, all of those kind of things. And that's what the, the workshop is really gonna focus on, is what are the resources that are out there, how do you access them, how do you do it quickly, and how do you actually educate the patients so that whenever you find that positive patch test reaction, you can get them better. Um, and it should be a really good thing, and it it's, should be a really innovative approach. But so a new approach to severe adult atopic dermatitis. This is absolutely my favorite thing in the world. I love seeing adults with horrible eczema. Uh, I get very very excited whenever I walk in the room because about 90% of the time I can fix them. Um, 10% of the time I can't. And the 10% who I can't fix, I know that right off the bat. But I love finishing that first visit with them because what I'm telling them is, we're gonna get you off of all the immunosuppresses. we're gonna get you off of all the steroids, you're gonna come back in six weeks and you're gonna be better. And I don't say you're probably gonna be better, no guarantees, I tell them they're gonna be better. And and usually they come back at six weeks and tell me they didn't really believe me, but I seemed so confident about it that they decided they would try what I was telling them and they're shocked because they actually are better for the first time ever. So this is a, a typical list that a patient will bring in whenever they come to see me for the first time. This is the adult ATOP who's seen, you know, 25 dermatologists over the last 15 years, you know, been on everything you can think of, you know, in the last five years, methotrexate, celsept. He, he has endless refillable prescriptions for prednisone, Keflex, ZPEX, Valtrex, Xanax, and trifluridine eye drops because he needs prednisone so frequently that his dermatologist just gives him an endless prescription and says, take it whenever you need it. Um, and, and that's a, 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 something I see relatively frequently, but this is a good example of the kind of guy who I'm excited to see because I'm, I'm going to be able to change his life, All right? So atopic dermatitis, most patients get better in their late teens and then have disease reappear in their 20s or 30s, and that's the normal progression of the skin barrier. Your skin barrier is worse when you're a baby. It peaks in your teenage years, and then it gets worse the rest of your life. And then... The people with the worst disease had it as a child, never had it go away completely, have a very high IgE level, and I usually check the IgE level just to kind of dazzle the patient. So I'll I'll set the expectations and say, we're going to check your IgE level to see just how atopic you are. If it's over 100, that's really abnormal. And then whenever they come back and it's 7,000, 8,000, 12,000, I can really tell them, you've got unbelievable atopic dermatitis. You have to do everything I say and then it helps with the compliance again. All right? so they have both hay fever and asthma. And, and really the change, the fundamental change, so when I was a dermatology resident, the, the, the hidden message whenever we saw bad atopics, so we'd, we'd go into the room, here's your trancellant ointment, use dove soap, wear cotton clothes, stay cool, don't sweat too much, don't shower too much, good luck. And we should have said as we were walking out the door, you're not gonna get any better. Because we knew that, we, we had no I, we had no even hope they were gonna get better. They would come back in six weeks, we might put them on imurane, we might put them on methotrexate, neither of those would work very well. Eventually they would get frustrated and stop coming to see us, and we would hope that they had really gotten better and that was why they didn't come back. But it was really just they got frustrated. But then, so I started thinking at that point about what, what are we, how can we do this differently? What's, what's out there that's a change? And, and, Really, the outside-in paradigm has come about in the last couple of years, and it's really fundamentally changed everything that we think about atopic dermatitis and everything about the way that we treat it. So barrier function, 80% of eczema is genetic, so 20% of it is environmental. Filaggrin has the strongest influence on atopic risk of any gene ever discovered, and it increases susceptibility to irritants and allergens as well. And, in fact, filaggrin has the strongest effect on the risk of a complex disease of any gene ever studied for any disease. All right so that we're taking out things like you know cystic fibrosis where there's a single gene and it's normal Mendelian inheritance. For any disease ever studied, any field of medicine, anything filaggrin's got the strongest risk. The strongest risk for atopy um, than anything else and and that tells us a huge amount about the disease. And so in the outside in paradigm the, the patients have barrier dysfunction as the primary etiology. Every single patient with atopic dermatitis, barrier dysfunction is the primary function. And, and Dr. Baikowski and I have had several arguments over uh, Guinness that we shouldn't actually call it atopic dermatitis anymore. We should call it you know, cutaneous barrier dysfunction. It should be the name of the disease. We shouldn't even tell them they have atopic dermatitis. We should tell them they have cutaneous barrier dysfunction. But the inflammation leads to further worsening of the barrier, and phalagrin is the best documented cause, but there are going to be a lot more that come out. Oh, I shouldn't walk in front of them, sorry. So irritants and water penetrating the barrier are the main thing in your mild-to-moderate atops. So the people with atopic dermatitis in their antecubital and popliteal fossa, maybe the side of their neck, maybe a little bit of eczema widespread once in a while, but not bad atopic dermatitis, not people who would primarily define themselves as somebody with bad eczema, somebody who is a normal person and has eczema, those people, it's mainly water and irritants. In the people with bad atopic dermatitis, it's proteins penetrating through the barrier. And the key thing, the fundamental part about understanding atopic dermatitis in adults is understanding which proteins are causing it in which patients, and you can tell that clinically. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. And then what do you do about those proteins? All right, so it's proteases, which lead to itch via direct stimulation of the protease-activated receptor, Proteases leading to a worsening barrier, right? So your, your stratum corneum is largely made up of protein. So if these proteases are breaking down the protein, they're making your barrier even worse. Toxins, and we'll talk about what the sources of these proteases and toxins are. And then allergens. And, and the allergens are by far the least important part. Um, by far the least important part. And that's why if you ask allergists about atopic dermatitis, they will tell you that allergen, allergens don't play that big of a role. And in most patients with atopic dermatitis, immunotherapy doesn't do a whole lot of good because the allergens are not the main thing. Now, the etiology is in the bricks and mortar, the stratum corneum, right? So the bricks, and by the way, bricks and mortar is one of the worst analogies imaginable. And I hate using it, but it's an it's analogy that everybody's heard and everybody accepts, so I, I can't get people to change. Your stratum corneum is not bricks and mortar, right? If your stratum corneum was a brick wall, you wouldn't be able to move. You would be completely stiff. A much better way to think about this is a bricks and peanut butter wall, because that's what your stratum corneum really is, okay? But so the bricks, we got these two filaggrin mutations early onset atopic dermatitis associated with asthma, but only in patients with atopic dermatitis, and, and we'll talk about that a little bit more because that's a really key um, pathophysiological point. And then additional, there, there are these more, there are more filaggrin mutations being discovered all the time. They just discovered filaggrin two. They're going to discover all kinds of additional stuff. But so the bricks, what's filaggrin actually do? So the filaggrin aggregates cytoskeletal proteins. And so it, it makes the... When you think about the bricks of the stratum corneum, it, they're hollow bricks. So you think of it as like a shell uh, of protein, okay? And so the phalagrin the causes that shell to harden. And it's important for, for making that protein shell. And then it degrades into, into amino acids, which are the natural moisturizing factor. And that acts as a humectant, drawing water into the stratum corneum via osmotic pressure. And it's a source of urocanic acid, which is a UV absorber. And so what are the expected results of deficiency? Well, loss of structural integrity of the corneocytes, and that means that your skin will be susceptible to friction and deformation. Well, what parts of your body have the most friction and deformation, by far? Your elbows and knees, your hands. What do people with atopic dermatitis get? Where do they get problems? Their elbows, their knees, and hand dermatitis, right? So it, it fits. The distribution is explained there. The dry stratum corneum, dryness impairs desquamation, and so that leads to the scaling that we see in atopic dermatitis, and loss of flexibility, which leads to the fissuring. And, so it, and then the UV sensitivity because they don't have the uricanic acid. And so flagrant deficiency really explains very nicely why we see what we see in atopic dermatitis, where people get it. Um, and, and that's one interesting aspect. The second is the mortar, right, or what I call the peanut butter. So the peanut butter is made of ceramides, cholesterol, and free fatty acid. And the ceramides are the part that matter in, in a topic. So cholesterol doesn't matter, the fatty acids don't matter, the ceramides are what matter. Um, the, the peanut butter has the, has the role of impeding water loss because it's kind of, it's an oil and so oil and water don't mix. So increased transepidermal water loss increase susceptibility to irritants and surfactants. So this is why atopics are so susceptible to soap and to harsh chemicals. And this is a picture that I often use whenever I'm educating my patients. And so I will show them this picture and tell them that the stratum corneum, you know, the part right up here, is, is where their eczema is. And, I'll sh- and what I like about this picture is it's got this nice little dimple here. So then it's very easy to explain to them how that, if it isn't flexible, it'll turn into a crack instead of bending like it's supposed to. Now, does this picture actually demonstrate that? Of course not. But patients don't know that, and it's okay to lie to patients if it helps with compliance. I am very strongly believe that, all right? So the healthy stratum corneum, you should think of as a sponge soaked in oil and water. So it's soft, it's smooth, it's flexible, you can bend it, okay? The unhealthy stratum corneum should be thought of as a sponge that's been allowed to dry out. So take a sponge, get it wet, and think about it, it's soft, smooth, you can bend it, it's hard to tear it. Take that same sponge, throw it under your sink, leave it there for, you know, six weeks, and then get it back out again, and what's that sponge look like? It's stiff, it's rough, and if you try and bend it, it's going to crack. And that's exactly the, um, the image that I want patients to have in their mind about their stratum corneum. So, let's see here, my, my assertion about atopic dermatitis. The best therapeutic approach is two-pronged. Number one, improve the barrier. Okay? So, stimulate the cutaneous defenses and eliminate causes of barrier dysfunction. And we'll talk about, a little bit more about what I mean about both of those. And then reduce the load of protein exposure. So, identify the causative proteins, reduce how long they're on the skin, and reduce their ability to penetrate through the stratum corneum. So, these proteins, the whole thing, what it all gets down to, in normal skin, proteins are not supposed to ever be able to penetrate the stratum corneum. That should never, ever happen in normal skin. And in atopics, because their barrier is bad in that atopic, in that uh, stratum corneum is not functioning, those proteins can penetrate. And that is the entire explanation. That's if, if I had to break it down into one sentence, what's atopic dermatitis? It's somebody who has a stratum corneum that allows proteins to penetrate. That is bad atopic dermatitis. That's the fundamental thing that's going on in these people. So every attempt should be made to minimize or eliminate topical steroid use. Topical steroids are probably one of the worst imaginable things you could do. If you were gonna say what's the worst thing you could do for atopic dermatitis, it would be topical steroids. Do I use them in all of the patients that I have? Absolutely I do, because we have to. But pathophysiologically, it is a horrible idea, all right? It doesn't treat the underlying etiology and they clearly make the barrier worse, leading to worsening of the underlying problem in the disease. So this is, what I like about this picture, This is three days of topical steroid. So we all have the sense if you use topical steroid too long, it impairs your barrier and you get thinning and atrophy and blah, 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 blah. Three days is all you need. Probably even less than three days. And that's a key thing to think about. Probably one application affects barrier function in atopics. And so the analogies that I think of, so why do I say steroids are such a horrible idea in atopic dermatitis? So treating atopic dermatitis with topical steroids is like treating bacterial pneumonia with what? like treating it with prednisone, okay? Because if you have bacterial pneumonia, if you walk in to the hospital and they say, okay, you have bacterial pneumonia, here's prednisone, how are you gonna feel 12 hours later? You're gonna feel fabulous. If, if you wanted the, the quickest, most effective treatment for tuberculosis, it's prednisone. Now the problem is, it makes you feel better, but it makes you more susceptible to the disease. So yeah, you're gonna feel better for the next day or two and then you're gonna die. So probably not a good risk-benefit ratio. Or it's like treating delirium tremens DTs, with vodka, or treating depression with heroin. So in all of these cases, you you will feel much better in the short term, but you're making the underlying problem worse. And that's exactly what we're doing with topical steroids and atopic dermatitis. All right, so how do I approach these challenging adult atopics? You've got to subtype them, and there are four categories that I, that I have been able to identify clinically. And those, the 10% who I said I know I can't get better are the 10% who I can't categorize yet. So there's still this group of people, about one in 10 bad adult ATOPS that I don't know what, they, what, the, what the problem is and what to do for them. So I, I'm willing to admit that. But So you've got your barrier dysfunction people, airborne protein driven, your staph super antigen driven, and then your malassezia, allergy-driven. And we're going to talk about each of these and how you recognize them. You can walk into a room and in about 10 seconds categorize the patient into which, into which of these groups they fall. Okay? And they can fall into multiple. So every single patient has barrier dysfunction. So everybody falls into that category. But then it's, do they fall into additional categories in addition? So this is a, is a nice kind of typical, relatively bad adult, uh, pure barrier dysfunction. This guy's not horrible, but He's fairly bad. It's hard, to, it's hard to photograph this. It's hard to photograph regular bad adult atopic dermatitis. This is a little girl who came in. She was using, uh, I think, tack ointment twice a day and use cream twice a day. This was her a week later after we got her off of the topical steroids and onto physiologic moisturizers. All right, this was a kid, uh, I think he was about 15, just kind of normal, all over, non-specific atopic dermatitis. And this is him a week later after we've gotten him off of topical steroids and gotten him onto physiologic moisturizers, right? So this is a woman using triamcinolone ointment on her face twice a day. This is her a week later off of topical steroids and using physiologic moisturizers, right? So it's, it's pretty clear what I'm getting at here. And, and these pure barrier dysfunction people, either typical distribution or generalized, just like Kenified. These are the people you walk in total body like Kenification, right? Xerotic with fine scaling, usually worse in the winter. Dull red, but not brightly erythematous. If they're brightly erythematous, there's something going on besides barrier, besides pure barrier dysfunction. And we'll talk about what, um, based on where that bright redness is. And so barrier repair, what do you do? The only thing that's been shown with any reasonable evidence to have any benefit for barrier repair are physiologic lipids. All right? And they are mechanistically completely different from traditional moisturizers. And I tell every patient that, that this is totally unrelated to every other moisturizer you've ever used. And the exact words that I use, because you've got to think about what resonates with patients. What are they going to walk away remembering? The way that I describe it is that every moisturizer you've ever used has put artificial oil on the surface of your skin. And people all have this sense, anything artificial is bad. And so it's like, oh my God, I've been putting artificial things on my skin. (laughs) And that what we're going to do with this physiologic moisturizer is stimulate the skin to produce its own natural oils from the inside out. People love those terms, natural and inside out. That speaks to them very well. And it's all pretty true, all right? I'm not totally lying whenever I'm telling them that. So traditional moisturizers, right? You put it on, and then what I always tell my patients is that if they could stand in their bathroom naked all day for the rest of their life, I could treat their atopic dermatitis with Vaseline or Eucine or Aquaphor. But the problem is most of them want to leave the bathroom at some point. And if they want to leave the bathroom, what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to put on clothes, They're going to have to sit in a car. They're going to have to sit in furniture. They're going to have to do stuff. And as soon as they do anything, it's gone. And so then it's not doing any good. So the benefits are short-lived and and really not that great unless you do something like the soak and smear where you have them soak in the bathtub for 20 minutes and then get out, put Vaseline all over their body, put on pajamas and sleep like that. That actually works really well if you can get people to do it. Um, But it's difficult to get people to do it, to say the least. So how does the physiologically lipids work. So traditional moisturizer, right? Occlusive ingredients right there. The physiologic penetrates through the the lipid portion, so it has to go through the stratum corneum, go between the keratinocytes, into the keratinocytes, goes into the Golgi, gets packaged into lamellar bodies and gets secreted and increases the skin's natural oil production from the inside out, just like we told the patient. And that's totally different from what every other moisturizer they've ever used has done. Alright, and so what's interesting about that is it lets us make some predictions. It lets us use the scientific method that we all learned in fifth grade, right? So the scientific method, you make an observation, you generate a hypothesis, and then you test that hypothesis. So we can make a hypothesis here that if if that's what happens, there should be a delay. It shouldn't work quickly. It should take time to penetrate, get absorbed, repackaged, and resecreted. And so if we do nothing, if we just damage the skin, in about eight hours, you've got about 55% recovery. If you damage the skin and then put on Vaseline, it works immediately, but one of the things that's very interesting here is this drop off, where eight hours later, you're worse off than if you did nothing. And that's because the the stimulus for the skin to repair itself, to upregulate its lipid production, is the damage to the skin and the transepidermal water loss. And so by improving that and reducing the transepidermal water loss in the short term, you reduce the skin's impetus to, to correct itself and to fix itself. So then if we do an equimolar physiologic lipid, so if we just put on the same lipids that are normally in the stratum corneum, it repairs itself normally. If we put in physiologic lipids that are wrong, it's sort of like putting in poison into the system. So we're gumming up the works if we do that and we slow it down. But if we put in an optimized physiologic lipid, we actually get this really dramatic increase, but it takes time, right? So it's, in this experimental setting, it's two hours before it's as good as, as the petrolatum was. Right? But if we, and then if we do a mixture of a barrier and a physiologic, we do even better. Now this is an experimental sighting. This is not a mouse who's you know tied down and shaved. And so it's, it's not real life, but it, it gets the idea across. And, and that's why that brown line on top looks great. But in real life, the, the mouse tied down in his cage and shaved is a lot like the person standing in the bathroom naked, right? It's a lot easier to treat a mouse than it is to treat a person with uh, occlusive moisturizers. So this is a, another interesting slide that also shows us this delay effect. And so you know, if we look at transdermal water loss for a the vehicle of a ceramide-based moisturizer, we see that at about, for about the first three to seven days, the vehicle and the ceramide-based are the, exactly the same. There, there's no difference at all. It's only at day seven that we suddenly see this dramatic improvement in the ceramide-based product. And again, that gets the idea across. This is a totally fundamentally different mechanism. And it's, it's being supported by the, the hypotheses that we would make that there's gonna be a delay. So what other evidence is there? So JAD, 2002, 24 kids with eczema, they replaced their Aquaphor and Ucerin and everything else with Episerum. Uh, this epicerum has been in development for about 15 years. And so this was 2002 when they did this study. And just by replacing their normal moisturizers with epicerum, they got 50% better. And, and that's a pretty nice, and, and again, we're seeing the delay, right? So it, ta- it took six weeks. The physiologic moisturizers take time. All right, so this was the epicerum study that they like to show with uh, epicerum versus fluticasone, showing that, that there was a similar improvement in the epicerum group and in the fluticasone group, they like to say that this study showed that the epicerum works as well as fluticasone, and that's a misleading statement. So this study was underpowered to show that. If they really wanted to try and prove that um, there was no difference between the two, they would have needed to enroll a lot more people. So there was no statistically significant difference between the two groups, just because it it wasn't a big enough group to study. And so it, it, it doesn't show that it works as good as fluticasone, but it's still pretty darn impressive. That they got almost as much benefit from a physiologic moisturizer as they did from a topical steroid. So this was in cutis in 2008, 60 patients, right? Three groups. Group one gets fluocinonide cream, so an occlusive moisturizer, right? So a flu- topical steroids that are creams or ointments or occlusive moisturizers. So an occlusive moisturizer, a steroid, and a mild bar. So fluocinonide cream and Dove, and they got about 50% better over four weeks. If they did the flucinonide cream plus CeraVe cleanser, they got about 75% better. And if they did fluocinonide cream, CeraVe cream, and CeraVe cleanser, they got about 90% better. Again, you know, this is, these were the patients that I was seeing in residency who maybe got a little bit of benefit out of the Dove and TAC, but this is adding something that actually addresses the underlying problem in the disease. All right, so do they work in the real world? We've got to think about cost and can they get enough of it? So standardizing the cost of 450 grams, um, you know, when you look at atopiclare mimics and elitone, they're about three to $500 a pound. Um, epicerum is about in that same group. I actually think epicerum is probably worth it. Uh, I wouldn't say that about the others. Aveno Advanced Care, Aquaphor, CeraVe, userin, Cedif. These are all relatively similarly priced. Uh, and dramatically cheaper, right, about 1 20th to one fiftieth of the cost of the prescription products. Other benefits. So stress is bad for the barrier. If you want your atopic patients to think you're a genius, say two things to them. Number one, tell them that whenever they get stressed, their eczema gets worse, and they will say, oh my God, you're right. And number two, tell them that whenever they sweat, their skin stings, and, or you can say, and I bet you're allergic to your sweat. Now, obviously, nobody's allergic. To, well, probably nobody's allergic to their sweat. But again, their eyes will get wide. their are Oh, my God, how did you know that? You're right. And again, you're, you're getting buy-in. You're getting them to understand. You're getting them to accept that you know what you're talking about. Right, but what's interesting here in all of these, it's been shown that it's decreased lipid synthesis and that can be improved with with physiologic lipids. So you can overcome the stress effects with physiologic lipids. And steroids, topical steroids in the short term like we talked about are bad for the barrier and they do it exactly the same way that stress does it. And what's interesting about this is it tells us one of the ways that we should be able to still use topical steroids without making the disease worse. Right? Because it should be the case that if we couple topical steroids with a physiologic lipid, we don't have those bad barrier effects. So, ointment versus cream, you know, I was taught, I think everybody's taught ointments work better, and that's totally wrong. Absolutely wrong. Anybody tells you that ointments work better than creams, they don't know what they're talking about. All right? Ointments are less allergenic than creams, that is not true. So, if you look at branded ointments versus branded creams, they're just as allergenic as each other. Ointments are more, now, in general, though, whenever we talk about, say, Tac ointment versus tac cream, yes. And the generics ointments are less allergenic, but ointments are more effective than creams. Absolutely not, not even close. So, in the real world, number one, the ointment gets wiped off, and you get less compliance, and so it simply doesn't work as well. Number two, and the part that's much more interesting is that steroid molecule is a lipid, is a lipophilic thing. It likes to be in lipid. It likes to be in oil. Okay. If you, ha- if you put a topical steroid on, you've got, that steroid molecule has a choice. It can either penetrate into the stratum corneum, which is sort of half water, half oil, or it can stay and hang out in that ointment on the surface, which is all oil. And as a general rule, right, the partition coefficient strongly favors that it will stay in the ointment or cream instead of penetrating into the skin. So the, the less lipid in your vehicle, the better delivery there is of your topical steroid. And that's something that I had been thinking about for a few years, and then somebody finally did a study that confirmed it, that you get much better delivery of the active ingredient whenever you use, say, a cream versus an ointment or a lotion versus a cream or a solution versus a lotion. The less lipid in your vehicle, the better the steroid penetrates. That's especially useful for hand dermatitis. So on the palms, don't use creams, don't use ointments, use clobetazole scalp solution. Tell the patients that it's going to sting whenever they put it on, and that that's a sign that it's penetrating, and that will help you to get better placebo effect in addition to the fact that it actually works better. Right? So you're gonna put it on, it's gonna hurt like crazy, that means it's penetrating. <laughs> and we will actually put it on then. All right? And then the other thing that's really interesting, ointments get colonized. And so even in a tube, topical steroid ointments get colonized with the exact same staph strains that are on the patient's skin. And so then you put them on their Keflex, get the staff off their skin, and then you have them smear it right back on, whenever they put their topical steroid ointment back on. Okay? And it was it was in studies been shown to be about 15% of the ointments in a tube are colonized with the bacteria that are on the skin. So summary for physiologic lipids: every single patient with atopic dermatitis should be using a physiologic lipid. There's there that is in general in medicine you're not supposed to make sweeping generalizations and always and nevers. To me this isn't always. Every single patient with atopic dermatitis should be on a physiologic lipid. The prescription product, epicerum, has got an optimized ratio of ceramide to fatty acid to cholesterol. It doesn't sting to any significant degree in the patients that I've seen. It has tons of data behind it. If data is important to you, there is a huge amount of literature, a huge amount of data. Almost everything I showed you today about physiologic lipids is epicerum information. So you can be sure that epicerum is doing what they say it does all right there's a huge amount of data behind it the over-the-counter product cerave, their shtick is that it's a synergistic combination of ceramide one and three i do see a fair number of patients who tell me that ceramide sting, that CeraVe stings when they put it on again i tell them that's a sign that it's penetrating and that it takes about a week of using it for the stinging to get better and the best part about CeraVe by far is that it's dirt cheap, right? Fifteen bucks for a pound. You get the coupons. It's 13 bucks for a pound. That's the best part is that it's dirt cheap. How do I use them? I use the prescription product for localized atopic dermatitis and for patients who have burning with CeraVe. The CeraVe I use for generalized atopic dermatitis, and I have them compound. And, and specifically, here's what I have people do. Instead of triumphal ointment, and this is designed to overcome that barrier defect I told you about that topical steroids all induce, Right, so 50 ml, you give them a script for 50 ml of Clobetazole scalp solution, and I give them just a written, you know, I have a thing that's on a Word document, I print it and hand it to them. They take it home, pour the whole thing into a new jar of CeraVe, and mix it up with a clean spoon. Most patients' insurances won't cover compounding, and so they can self compound this at home and it's cheap. Right, whatever their copay is for generic Clobetazole plus the $13 for the CeraVe gives them a pound of it. And it overcomes that barrier defect that. You, you, by putting the physiologic lipid on with the steroid, you don't get the barrier defect that you get if you use a steroid by itself. Okay, um, and so what I, my specific regimen for topical therapy, what I have people use cream-wise for atopic dermatitis, two jars of Cerave. This is for people who have, who have atopic dermatitis all over. Two jars of Cerave. The one that they pour the Clamato's all in, they get a sharpie and write medicated on the jar. The other jar is regular, so they have medicated CeraVe to their active disease twice a day, regular CeraVe everywhere else twice a day. That's it, no other steroids, nothing else. And the other thing that it helps with, if you start having your ATOPS bring in all their tubes, they will bring in four, five, six, seven, eight tubes of topical steroid, and if you then at, lay them all out and say, tell me which one you use when and where you put it, they don't have any idea. they're they're basically randomly picking what they're picking on a day-to-day basis and putting it on depending on how itchy they are. Um, And this gets away from that. It makes it extremely simple for them. So I I have them wash immediately prior to putting it on because it's got to penetrate through the stratum corneum and it penetrates better right after you wash. So using samples to improve compliance. So you should never, ever, 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 ever give samples of CeraVe. Okay? And there's a very good reason for why you should never, ever, 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 ever give a sample of CeraVe to anybody. And you should also never give a grab bag that includes CeraVe and other stuff. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. And this slide tells you why. Okay? It takes a week to see any benefit at all from CeraVe. So unless you give somebody enough CeraVe to put all over their body every day, twice a day for a week, you are giving them samples of CeraVe with the it being absolutely impossible that they'll see any benefit or utility to it. Giving people samples of CeraVe is exactly analogous to somebody coming in with acne, giving them a 2-gram sample tube of Retin-A and saying, use what's in this tube. If your acne's cured when this is gone, call me and I'll call you in a script for the Retin-A. If your acne's not cured when you finish your 2-gram sample tube of Retin-A, then you know what, it's not going to work and don't worry about it. You would never, ever do that with acne. But whenever you give a sample of CeraVe, that's exactly what you're doing. It is impossible for it to do any good in less than about five to seven days. And so the patients aren't going to see the benefit. They're going to think, oh, this is a little bit, this is more expensive than my Curel or my Vaseline intensive care or my whatever, and they're not going to use it. All right, so then you optimize their showers, right? So I was taught that you tell people with atopic dermatitis, shower once or twice a day. That once a day or every other day. Worst advice you could possibly give them. Okay? People with atopic dermatitis should be showering a minimum of once a day, maybe two or three times a day. So you've, you've got to optimize the showers, though. So how do you optimize the showers? So number one, shower at least twice a day. They've got to apply a physiologic moisturizer right afterwards. And you've got to remove the chlorine and the minerals from the water. People ask me all the time about water hardness. Water hardness may or may not mean anything, but chlorine and minerals in the water mean a lot. And this has been shown in a couple of studies, and there's a cheap way to do this. So at Lowe's or Home Depot, For 20 bucks, you can get a shower head filter that removes the chlorine and all the minerals from the water, and this has been shown in a study out in New Zealand, a well-done study to make a significant difference in atopic dermatitis. 20 bucks, it's cheap. You've gotta replace the little inside filter cartridge every six months, those are 10 bucks. So for 30 bucks the first year and 20 bucks a year after that, you can optimize their shower, and this makes a significant difference. Even for your people who just have dry skin, this makes a significant difference, okay? So that's how you optimize their showers, and you've got to optimize their laundry. So the problem with laundry is the detergent doesn't all rinse completely out. So if you look at a washing machine, if you, wash it, if you watch it at the end of the rinse cycle, it's still sudsy. And so the detergent is still in there, and then if they start to sweat some, you can get re-release of the detergent, some irritant dermatitis. You can either have them double rinse, or you can have them add some vinegar to the wash. And so vinegar changes the pH of the water, and you get much better rinse out of the detergent. And then fabric softener. So fabric softener's the good is that it makes the clothes softer so there's less irritation. The bad is that fabric softeners, the way that they work is by putting a thin layer of a lipid-type thing over the fibers. And the problem is then sweat can't be absorbed. And when sweat can't be absorbed, the sweat stays on the skin longer and stings more. So that's bad for atopic dermatitis. We can get the full benefit without any of the downside with Dryer Max Dryer Balls. So these will be in the As Seen on TV section in Target and Walgreens and CVS. They're 10 bucks, they save money because you never have to replace them unlike fabric softener or fabric sheets. And they make the clothes nice and soft without putting anything in them that's gonna make atopic dermatitis more irritating. All right, so now we're, so I spend a lot of time on the barrier part because every single patient needs their barrier addressed. Every patient with bad adult atopic dermatitis has a horrible barrier and that's the foundation of therapy is treating their barrier. Now we're going to talk about the three other categories that you can walk in the room and recognize and be like, oh, you are a blah, and here's what we're going to do for you. Okay? How you're going to individualize your therapy for them. So this guy is the absolute classic demonstration of this type. So he's got what I call an inverse T-shirt pattern. So if he was wearing a T-shirt and pants, and you walked in and looked at him, you would think he was erythrodermic because his neck, his face, his arms are bright red. But once he takes the once he takes the t-shirt off, he's relatively spared everywhere under the t-shirt. All right, this kid the arms didn't photograph well, but the same idea here, kind of from the neck up. And these people are often suspected of having photodermatitis. They don't have photodermatitis. They have air they have exposed to air dermatitis. Okay? So in men it's this inverse t-shirt pattern. In women, it's facial dermatitis. And so women with atopic dermatitis who get this subtype, it ends up being a, a facial dermatitis primarily that'll sort of come down the neck a little bit. But, and they get regular eczema everywhere else, but their worst area will be their face. And it specifically, and I haven't figured out the why yet, that area right there is the worst, all right? Almost every woman with, with this subtype, this airborne type, has this bad spot right here under her nose. Now they're all also on inhaled steroids because they all have asthma, but I've patch tested probably a hundred of these people. None of the, I thought they were maybe allergic to the steroid. None of them are allergic to the steroid. I can't I can't figure out why that particular spot, but it it just is. But so this airborne pattern atopic dermatitis. So facial in women, and in men the inverse T-shirt pattern. So face, neck, and, and exposed arms. So these protein, quote, allergens, and the reason I say, quote, allergens, is because they are allergens, but we don't care that they're allergens. They just, it's sort of coincidental that they're allergens, right? So allergens that are proteases. Remember at the beginning, we talked about how proteases directly make you itch by activating the protease activator receptor that's on your nerve endings, and they break down the barrier because your stratum corneum is mainly protein. Dust mite, cockroach, ragweed, birch, cedar, every allergen that's been studied is a protease, And that's the key thing about this airborne pattern. In these people, it's these airborne proteins getting on their skin that's causing their eczema to be worse. So the mechanism, proteolytic effects, leads to a worse barrier, and then the protease activated receptor, direct cytokine release in in pruritus, okay? So then airborne proteins, the elevated IgE is purely a marker. It doesn't mean anything. They have no innate abnormality of the immune system. It's simply that they get exposed to these proteins because their barrier is so bad, and then their immune system reacts because it gets exposed. It's reacting the way it's supposed to react whenever you get transcutaneous exposure to proteins. The thing is, there's not supposed to be much transcutaneous exposure, but in ATOPS, there's a ton. So then that method is the most effective way to make somebody have a TH2 or TH17 allergy. And this is why the people with eczema get asthma, because they get pollen and ragweed and dust mite and whatever penetrating through their skin, that makes them become allergic to it, and then whenever they breathe it in, they get asthma. So that's why people, that's the atopic march. All right? And so when these allergies get to the lung, they get asthma. The airborne pattern in men simulates a photodermatitis, and it's the inverse T-shirt. In women, it's a facial dermatitis. Infranasal, infranasal is especially bad. The history clues, they're more itchy at night and they may flare during bad mucosal allergy seasons, and they usually have significant asthma or mucosal allergies, All right, almost exclusively. So what do you do for these people? The first thing I will tell you, and my animations are a little bit out of order here, these are the, these are the worst. Of the adult atopics, these are the hardest to treat. These are the people that are the most difficult to make a significant difference for, but what are the things that, does, that do help? So the hardest variety to treat, might avoidance helps. Mattress and pillowcase colors, you get them for 30 bucks at Target, Um, put them on your bed, you put them on your pillowcase. The way to improve compliance with doing this, does anybody know what percentage of your pillow is dust mite poop? 20%. So if your pillow weighs five pounds, you have one pound of dust mite poop. All right? So tell patients that, and they will be very likely to go buy the cover for their pillow. All right? So mattress and pillowcase covers... Cost about 100 bucks online for really nice ones. You get them at Target for about 30 bucks. They got a vacuum once a week in their bedroom. That's it. Nothing else needs to be done for mites. Remove proteins from the skin by washing at least twice a day. And I often will have these people shower three times a day. The women with facial dermatitis, I'll have them wash their face five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times a day. The more you wash, the more you remove the proteins, and the less opportunity there is for the proteins to break down the barrier and activate that protease-activated receptor. So you've got to follow every washing, though, with a physiologic moisturizer. All right, so that's subtype number one, your airborne protein types. And like I said, they're the hardest to treat, and there's not that much to do. You do mite avoidance, and you have them wash a lot. That's basically what you can do. You're trying to get them away from the proteins as much as you can. It's probably most important to try and fix the barrier so that the proteins can't penetrate as much. Now, this was a kid who came in. He was using Lidex on his face twice a day, and... The thing that I want you to take away here is not just the facial dermatitis, but this sort of upper chest from acromium to acromium, okay? That is a very specific finding. And this is him off of topical steroids six weeks later, right? This woman, uh, I'm trying to think what she was using. She was using a class three, uh, and her face would look like this for about five or six years. And this was her at her six-week follow-up off of topical steroids, This kid was using clobetazole on his face twice a day. Um, And again, look at this, from a sort of acromium to acromium that's very specific whenever you see it. And this is him six weeks later off of the clobetazole, off of topical steroids. And this was a woman, I didn't have a follow-up because she came from from so far away. But again, sort of this going out to the lateral aspect of the shoulder and coming across the upper chest. She also had some impetigenization in addition. But that pattern is malassezia, okay? So malassezia driving atopic dermatitis, these people have malassezia living on their skin like we all do. Usually when they're teenagers or 20 or 30, they'll become allergic to the malassezia. And that's been demonstrated lots of different ways um, in terms of proving that they're allergic. Now, there's no way you can do it clinically. You just have to make the diagnosis and say you're allergic to malassezia. And anti-malassezia benefits them. So if you see somebody, the typical story, I had eczema when I was a kid, it was normal, you know, elbows and knees, maybe it went away, maybe it got better. But then in my teenage years or my 20s or 30s, my face got bad and nothing works. Nothing has made my face better. I've looked like this since it started. Prednisone helps some, but then it comes right back. I still have eczema everywhere else. It's not that big of a deal, but my face is horrible. That's the story that you hear with malassezia-driven atopic dermatitis. Right? And so, history of typical flexural eczema, history of mucosal allergies, when sebum production increases, malassezia populations that increase, and then at some point they become allergic to the malassezia. What do you do for these people? This is my absolute favorite type because it is so easy to fix these people. It, it's just it's fabulous because they've been horrible for years, and you can tell them, you're going to come back in six weeks and you're going to be better. And again, not like you might be better, you're going to be better. Okay, I do itraconazole, 100 milligrams twice a day for two months, then 100 milligrams BID or Q day on Saturday or Sunday. Itraconazole, in terms of safety, I will check a set of LFTs at the beginning. Assuming the LFTs are normal, I never check anything. I never check them again, and I explain to the patient that this medication is so safe that if we continue to check your blood tests, the chances you're going to die while you are driving to the lab to get your blood work in a car accident are much higher than the chances we're gonna kill you with the medication. So the risk benefit is dramatically in favor of not checking blood work, all right? Now the ketoconazole I will check blood work in. There's significantly more hepatotoxicity. If I can't get the itraconazole covered, it's generic, but if I can't get it covered because it's still expensive, then I'll do ketoconazole. And in those people, for those first two months, I do check monthly labs to make sure their LFTs are okay. And then even whenever they go to the 200 milligrams two days a week, I'll still check labs maybe every three months just to make sure uh, that we're not causing hepatotoxicity with the ketoconazole. It is, I tried a lot of topical stuff in terms of topical antimalassezia therapy. I don't think any of it ever really did any good. You've got to treat them systemically. And so then the, the last subtype. So this subtype right, is very nonspecific in terms of its distribution. The other subtypes are very distribution-specific. This is very specific in terms of its morphology. So it's kind of a moist... Atopic dermatitis, right? So this is this girl six weeks later. This is this guy. I don't have follow-up pictures on him, but fronts and backs of the legs. And this is a specific finding. Anytime you see some fissuring in the antecubital or popliteal, that is an absolute guarantee that it's staph-driven disease, okay? The, any crusting, any scabbing, any erosions, any of that, staph-driven disease, okay? You can culture it if you want, but you don't really have to. All right, and the answer, and we'll talk about why you don't have to in a sec here, right? So for this staph-driven disease, and the usual history is I've got fairly bad eczema, but then it'll just explode several times a year and it'll be horrible. A lot of them are bad all the time, but they tend to be more of a flare than not so bad than flare than not so bad than flare, but they're constantly flaring, okay? So staph-driven disease, two key observations here, two really fundamentally key observations. Number one, super antigens and that staph isolated from atopics produces more superantigen than staph isolated from non-atopics, and then MRSA. And this is the most fascinating part. Like, I, this is something that I I had started, I'd seen in my own patients, and then finally somebody studied it, and it's very true. ATOPS don't get MRSA. It is very uncommon, distinctly uncommon, compared to non-ATOPS. And there's very good reason why that's the case. We're gonna talk about why, and that's why you don't need to culture it. For the most part, if they're not penicillin or, or, or uh, cephalosporin allergic, you can just put them on a beta-lactam and it'll work. As compared to all your other patients who are mainly all, ha- mainly all have MRSA now, your ATOPS mainly won't have MRSA. So in one study, it was 10% of the ATOPS had MRSA compared to 80% of the non-ATOPS. And that's probably about what I see in my practice. So why is this the case, that it produces super antigen but it's not MRSA? Okay, it's competitive advantage. It's those proteins the superantigens that are proteins, in atopics, they can penetrate the stratum corneum, cause inflammation and a bad cutaneous defense, and it gives strains that produce those toxins a strong competitive advantage 100% of the time. Okay? Constant competitive advantage over non-toxin producing strains because the toxins can penetrate. In non-atopics, the superantigens cannot penetrate, so they get no benefit at all. So the, the antigens, superantigen producing strains, have no benefit that gives them no competitive advantage, nothing to make them grow in non-atopics. Antibiotic resistance confers a temporary growth advantage in both atopics and non-atopics. In non-atopics, because the superantigens don't matter, that antibiotic resistance drives MRSA. In the atopics, the benefit that the strains get because they produce superantigen is enormously more important than the benefit they get from being antibiotic resistant. And so that's why your ATOPS don't get MRSA, okay, because the superantigen is a much bigger deal. Now, what's going to happen over the next few years is there are going to start to be strains that are both MRSA and produce superantigen, and then that's going to be a disaster. But at the moment, that's not a problem. All right, so staph driven disease, difficult to control, any distribution, any fissures, weeping cracks, staph, moist scale, and so how do you treat it? You've got to eliminate staph carriage and then prevent recolonization. And there's not, there's not been a decent article written on this, which drives me nuts. There are, are hundreds of bad articles about it, but not a single decent one. And so what do you do to, to do this? It's, it's actually pretty simple. So antibiotics, at least a month. Okay, so not two weeks, not 10 days, at least a month. I usually use Keflex 500 TID. I might use Doxy. I might use Bactrim. You've got to add rifampin, 300 milligrams BID, for the first week. Okay, rifampin is the key aspect to decolonizing people. It has much better mucosal penetration, and skin penetration than any other antibiotic. And that's why rifampin is an effective decolonizer. You can't use rifampin on its own though because the, the bacteria will immediately become resistant. You can only use it once by itself. If you want to be able to continue to use it, you've got to couple it with another antibiotic. So they will walk out from my office with a script for a month of either cephalexin, doxy, or, or Bactrim, and a week of rifampin. So they'll do both antibiotics the first week, and then they'll do the other, the one antibiotic for the next three. So now we've decolonized them, now we've got to prevent recolonization. So daily antibacterial washes, I I don't have anybody use Dove soap. I think that Dove soap is okay for atopics. It's probably one of the less damaging soaps, but they need, these people especially, and probably most atopics need antibacterial wash. And what I like for this is Dial Moisturizing Antibacterial Body Wash. It's about five bucks, has glycerin in it, it's a nice moisturizing product, it's non-drying, it's got a good triclosan concentration, it helps. And again, this is one of those things where the patients are like, Oh my god, nobody's ever told me to use anything but dove before. This is such a big change, it's gonna be amazing. They get they're in it, you know, anything to help with compliance, all right? But so daily antibacterial washes, that's gonna be their soap. And in this, never ever, 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 ever tell somebody to get a bleach bath. You should never, ever, ever tell anybody that. What you should tell people is they need to get in a swimming pool for fifteen minutes once a week. And then they will say, I guess I could join the Y. I guess I can do And then you say, oh, you know what? I forget, I'm a dermatology PA. We all have swimming pools in our houses. And so since you're not a dermatology PA, you probably don't have one. So instead, you're gonna make swimming pool water at home. Oh my gosh, how can I do that? This is like the most exciting thing they've ever heard. (laughs) You put a quarter cup of bleach in a bathtub. Hey, this is the bleach bath. If you say you're gonna get bleach bath. You're going to add bleach to your bath. Every single atopic will think, oh my god, my skin is going to burn off when I get into the bathtub. There's no way this, and, and I've actually had people leave my office when I used to tell them that, call their PCP, and their PCP would be like, oh my god, no, don't do that. <laughs> so, but if you reframe it into, it's a swimming pool. Can you get in a swimming pool without your skin burning? Yes, of course, they've all, they all, and most of them will also be like, hey, I get better in the summer when I'm swimming. And so you get, you get some, again, reinforcement of it. So it's, it's the way that you frame it. And then the key thing here, you are doing no good for anybody at all with bleach baths unless you also do the following. The day that they get their bleach baths, so and I do one bleach bath a week, freshly laundered sheets on their bed, freshly laundered towels, and freshly laundered PJs. Because whenever they get out of that bleach bath, if they use the same towel that they used the last time they got a shower or a bath, they're putting all the staff right back on. If they put on the same PJs that they had on the night before, they're putting the staff right back on. If they get in, their, in bed in the same sheets they slept in the night before, they're putting the staff right back on. You're not doing any good for them. They've got to pick one night a week. And I always use Tuesday as my example night. Um, t- so Tuesday, you're going to get your bleach bath and you're going to do laundry. And you're going to put fresh sheets on your bed, new towels, new pajamas. You've got to do them all the same night. So we avoid recombination sources. So the sheets, bed, and pajamas we just talked about. Avoid ointments. We talked about that about 15 to 20% of ointments will be colonized with bacteria. And consider their nose. I like Neosporin uh, one week per month. I actually, there's less resistance to Neosporin than there is to Mupirocin. So I will use Mupiracin sometimes if I'm worried they're allergic to Neosporin. But my experience is that ATOPS don't get that much contact dermatitis. I'm not sure why, but I don't see a lot of contact dermatitis problems in ATOPS. And I patch just a lot of ATOPS. So, staph driven disease impaired barrier is the first cause. The second cause is decreased cathelicidin production. People have been looking for decades for something to increase cathelicidin production. Cathelicidin is your skin's natural antimicrobial peptides that kill bacteria. Atops produce almost none. Vitamin D is the only thing anybody's ever found that actually increases cathelicidin production, and that's probably why phototherapy works in in people with atopic dermatitis because it induces cutaneous vitamin D production. You got to give them big doses. 4,000 units a day of vitamin D is what it takes to increase their cathocidin production. Patients will ask, oh my God, isn't that going to be toxic? And you should also be thinking, aren't they going to get hypercalcemia like you worry about a little bit with Dovinex and with Vectical? No. So it's been very well studied. 10,000 units a day is safe, completely safe. 50,000 units a day is probably safe. So you're not going to hurt anybody with 4,000 units a day of vitamin D. And they can get 2,000 unit pills at CVS and Walgreens. So it's not like they're going to have to get the 400 unit pills and take 10 a day. They just have to take two of them a day of the 2,000 unit pills. And this is probably, like I said, why phototherapy works for ATOPS. Alright, so the staff patients. Antibiotics, add some rifampin, uh, do the 15 minutes a week in swimming pool water, avoid recolonization, towels, pajamas, sheets, antibacterial washes, and vitamin D. Okay, so then the two-pronged therapeutic approach, just in general, repair the barrier and target therapy, reducing the causative proteins that the skin sees. So in the way that you figure out which proteins to address, what type are they? Are they pure barrier dysfunction? Are they aeroallergen? Are they staph-driven? Are they malassezia-driven? Pure barrier dysfunction, typical distribution, dry and lichenified, aeroallergen-driven, airborne pattern Staff driven, any distribution but moist, scaly, cracked, fissured, eroded, and their malassezia that distribution head and neck. Okay? And people ask me frequently, well, how is that different from seborrheic dermatitis? Mechanistically, it's very similar, but it's just clinically completely different, right? You, you don't look at those people and think, oh, maybe that's sebderm. Pathophysiologically, it's similar, but it, it's different clinically. And so when all else fails, and I have maybe two or three atopics on systemic therapy because I can get them all better doing this. But when all else fails, my first line systemic therapy is chloroquine. It's safe and it works in about 50% of the people. It was studied in a German study in the 80s. It also works for asthma. I'll do Plaquenil um, if I'm worried to give chloroquine for some reason. Plaquenil doesn't work as well, but people are more familiar with it. I'll do naltrexone, 50 milligrams. That's actually pretty dramatically effective for the itch in atopic dermatitis. People, when you look at the neurophysiology in atopics, one of the, and I'll often talk about this with patients, one of the things that's interesting is if you take an atopic and a non-atopic and you take a, a needle that's got a little bit of electrical current and you poke their skin with it, the non-atopic will say, ow, that hurts. The atopic will say, that itches. So they, per- they, they perceive stimuli differently than, than non-atopics do. Um, and so now Trexone actually works for them. I do Cellcept usually 2,000 milligrams BID. I consider this stuff to be incredibly safe. If somebody walked up to me today and said, Matt, you're gonna take Cellcept 2,000 milligrams BID for the next year, we're not gonna check any blood work, I wouldn't be worried about it. Now, do I tell patients I'm that flippant about it? No, I check blood work and follow it and whatever, but I think of CELCEPT as unbelievably safe. Cyclosporin in the very short term, Um, I'll do very low dose if I have to do if I had to do long term methotrexate low dose and then rosiglitazone, which is a anti-diabetic medication. Um, But really, I very rarely use any of these because you can get the bad adult atopics better by targeting your therapy at which proteins are driving their disease. Okay, and that's it. So I will. This is updated. I'll make sure it gets on the thing. And if anybody has any questions, I'm... I noticed you did mention fluconazole. So fluconazole works really badly. Um, just in general, you get there's very poor skin penetration with fluconazole. Um, for candida, for dermatophytes, for anything, it's just fluconazole does not work nearly as well as itraconazole and ketoconazole. So you could use it if, you know, for insurance coverage purposes, that kind of stuff, it just doesn't work nearly as well. Hi. Would you ever consider eyelid dermatitis atopic so as opposed to irritant, and how would you treat it? Oh, ab- absolutely. So? Um, the biggest problem, and I'm going to talk to him about this tomorrow, um, I, you know what, I'm probably just, it's a, it's a lengthy answer, so I'm just going to, I'm going to leave it for my talk tomorrow. Okay, But great. I'm going to talk specifically about, that's one mm-hmm. of the subtypes of eyelid dermatitis, is atopic eyelid dermatitis. When you were talking about the CeraVe and the clobetazole scalp solution mixture, yes. do you use that on kids too, or just adults? So that's a great question. Um, here's the way that I think about this. Okay. All right, so a jar of CeraVe with clobetazole mixed into it is... Essentially 50 grams of clobetazole. That's enough clobetazole to put it over your entire body twice. And so my assumption is that you could never ever hurt yourself by putting clobetazole on twice a month. And so I don't think you can hurt yourself by using it every day in a much more dilute form. In kids, um, there's probably, so there's higher absorption, there's a different sort of body surface area to volume ratio. And so in kids, I actually usually use Mometazone scalp solution um, to try and step it back a little bit. I, I think it's probably safe to use the clobetazole, but I don't, I, the reason I don't like taking care of kids with atopic dermatitis is because it's much harder. Right. Like kids, are their barrier, and the thing is, the reason it's so hard is their barrier is so bad that you just can't, you can't fix it. There's literally nothing you can do to make a kid with that eczema better. Other than put them on high dose prednisone or something like that, which is problems of its own. Kids are impossible. Okay, so you wouldn't do desonide within the cerave over top no. of it. No. I always do mix. The, I always mix the steroid the mix. into the cerave. Okay. Your, your compliance. So an interesting study, not specifically about atopic dermatitis, but applicable. If you look at acne patients, what percent? If you just tell them put one topical on once a day, what percentage of acne patients are compliant with that? lots Hi. zero no not a single one so whenever they've done that study and if you you consider compliance to be you put the medication on 80 percent of the time that you're supposed to they did a stealth monitoring study where they had a little computer chip that was in the tube cap and so right. the right. person didn't know they were being monitored not a single teenager was compliant not one every kid they studied not a single one was compliant and so Its compliance is what the the main reason topicals don't work in dermatology is just because people don't use them. Um, In general, people don't use them. But so that's one of the big reasons I always mix the steroid into the CeraVe, because I have no faith that anybody is going to put on two things. Thank you. Yep. Yes. Do you have any pearls for um, chronic irritant hand dermatitis? So chronic irritant hand dermatitis, yes. A couple of things. Number one is the soak and smear approach. So the soak and smear for hands, while somebody's watching TV at night, they put their hands in plain warm water for about 15 to 20 minutes, take their hands out of the plain warm water, and usually I will have them put on either Usurin Plus Intensive Repair hand cream, um, or Vaseline, or well, usually one of those two, um, and then put a pair of cotton gloves over it. I never tell people to use white cotton gloves because they're hard to find and they're expensive. I tell people to, to use jersey gloves. And so if Jersey gloves are are always brown, they're soft cotton, they're a dollar a pair, you can get them at Lowe's, Walmart, Home Depot, Target, everywhere in the gardening section. And they stay on better than the white cotton gloves because they have a little bit of a cuff on So I think we all know about the, you know, put something on and then wear gloves overnight. It is dramatically more effective if they soak for 15 minutes first. So that's pro number one for irritant hand dermatitis. Pro number two for irritant hand dermatitis, everything that I said about why topical steroids are a really bad idea for atopic dermatitis goes for irritant hand dermatitis. They do give you some symptomatic benefit, but they make the underlying process worse. So I try and and use protopic whenever I can, but it's much less effective as a symptomatic relief. Um, The third thing is telling people how to use moisturizer correctly. And so whenever you're talking about irritant hand dermatitis, it's not how much moisturizer you put on, it's how often you put it on. And so they have to put moisture, if they're gonna use plain moisturizer, they have to put it on every time they wash their hands. If they use, if I'm gonna give them, and I use a lot of Tetrix for this. The main benefit that you get from Tetrix is that they need to put it on every third time they wash their hands. So they're more likely to be realistic about actually using the Tetrix the way that they're supposed to. Um, and then I have one other thing, but now I've forgotten what it is. Oh, um, hand sanitizer. So the less they wash their hands, the better, the more that they use hand sanitizer, the better. So hand sanitizer actually benefits irritant hand dermatitis. Now the patients will be like, oh my God, it stings when I put it on. Well, and the way that I explain that is that the alcohol activates your nerve endings, but it doesn't damage the skin. Soap and water does not activate your nerve endings, but it does damage your skin. And so the more um, hand sanitizer they use, the better. The less they wash their hands, the better. Would you use the same approach to dishydrotic dermatitis on the hands and feet? So, dishydrosis is one of my least favorite things because it's disastrous to treat. Um, for dishydrotics, the things that I tend to do, everyone look for a trigger. Um, Systemic nickel, dietary nickel, is a big trigger in, in dyshidrosis. Um, about one person in a thousand in the general population is walking around with a rash from nickel in their diet. And, and that's, there, there are big gun analyses. That number is absolutely on the money. One person in a thousand. And if you think about one person in a thousand, right? So I live in Columbus, Ohio. We've got about 1.3 million people. That means there's like 1,300 people walking around in Columbus with bad dermatitis from nickel in their diet. And so nickel is, is a big deal um, in dyshidrosis. But for, for people who I can't find anything, I'll look hard for staff and I'll treat them aggressively with one of the rifampin-based approaches. Um, that's another big cause of, of a dishydrotic pattern. And then for the people who neither of those is what's going on, it just stinks. Um, I have literally found nothing that I think does much good. Um, immunosuppressants, eh, maybe help. Um, But it just, it it stinks. I got nothing good. That's why I don't lecture about it.